the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, what is the difference between fundamentalism and evangelicalism? And then we're joined by Danica Cooley, award-winning children's author and Bible curriculum developer. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, happy Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, Just good to be here, Aubrey. It is nice. It is cool outside. It is a Tuesday. How are you today? How am I? I'm good. I was at the outreach uh, fundraising event last night, which was really fun. I'm tired this afternoon, but making up for uh making up for it by just enjoying the afternoon with you how oh well thank you very much how (laughs) how late do you have to be out in order to be hired the next day uh you know i go to bed pretty early i mean i'm kind of like i fall in the sleep fall asleep on the couch around nine (laughs) and kevin's like shaking me like aubrey let's go upstairs let's go upstairs so we were we were out at this event until oh i mean probably 11 and then we stayed up and chatted for a while and that's you know that's probably actually not that late compared to most people but because i'm an i'm an early bird uh, I'm not good in the night hours. I'm, so, with, yes, I'm, I'm with you on the oldness there. Like uh, once I see 11, I'm like, nope, that's, that's a young that's man's late. game. That's, that is- yeah, that's, that's a young man's game. <laughs> that's a young yep. man's game. Nothing good happens after 10 PM. <laughs> do you remember in college? You'd be like, Hey, what do you want? Hey, what, what time is it? 1130? Like, Oh, let's go to Taco Bell. Why not? <laughs> I mean, yes. Like that just felt normal. Or like my friends and I would be like, Oh, it's midnight. Let's go to Walmart. It's open all night. Or and- even worse. It'd be like, all right, I guess it's midnight. I should probably start the eight page paper due at like 9 15 tomorrow <laughs> oh that no i that was not me as a student i was very diligent oh is that right oh yeah no oh, not me you're a theater <laughs> person you theater people weren't diligent with your work <laughs> well, i i didn't quite fit in i i was i was i don't like deadlines i want things out i want things done early Oh, I, you and I will have that conversation someday because I couldn't have been more opposite than that. Really? Oh, oh that really surprises goodness. me. It would be like, oh, it's due tomorrow at, at nine. Yeah, whatever. Let's get, I'll start that after midnight. Here we go. And, and it would be, uh, <laughs> that was crazy. So anyway, we're glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, last week, uh, all the Southern Baptist Convention talk, we actually had David French on last week to discuss it, uh, but Uh, David French wrote a blog post at the French press called under attack from fundamentalist pirates, evangelical Baptists refuse to give up the ship. Uh, Excuse me. So he's looking back at what all that happened and he's trying to say, what is the landscape out there? Kind of what's going on out there. And I want to just read one part of what he wrote at the very beginning. It in classic David French form is really long. We'd love to have you read it. 
Uh, he said, if I had to summarize last week at the Southern Baptist Convention in a single sentence, it would be this. In a series of contentious confrontations, the largest pro Protestant denomination confirmed that it is for now more evangelical than fundamentalist. And that outcome is good news for the church and the nation. He goes on to talk about what is evangelical, what is fundamentalist. Uh, but I guess I would ask, how do you differentiate the two? And then I want to ask this a follow-up question as to maybe why there's this rise in fundamentalism, both politically but more for our conversation religiously. Uh, but how do you differentiate for people between um, – evangelical and fundamentalist. Right. Because I think often they get lumped into the same category. And mm -hmm. I think for years, I probably didn't even realize that there was a difference. I mean, evangelical historically, you know, dating back to like the Moravians and uh, John Wesley and some mm -hmm. of the, you know, the other leaders in our midst, um, we kind of say evangelicalism is folks who believe in conversion. Uh, yes. Folks who really value um, like Bible study as part of the their Christian tradition. Um, folks who, I mean, there's like five different tenets. I'm I'm blanking on what the other three are, but historically, evangelicalism like affirms these things: the God's mission in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't remember the other two. I'm a bad evangelical right now. But um, <laughs> you failed evangelical, <laughs> right? I would say fundamentalists actually probably affirm some of those things. However, fundamentalists are um, very concerned with being counterculture. Mm. Um, this, like, waging war against culture, separating themselves from culture. I think um, they take Romans really seriously, where Romans talks about you know don't be conform to the pattern of this world and really would separate themselves from what they would consider worldly, but also a mission to be sort of anti-culture. Mm. Th that would be my biggest definition. I, I would say this probably shows my bias. I would say fundamentalists are more um, law, like yes. that really matters where evangelicals would focus evangelicals would focus more on grace. So that is exactly where David French goes in his oh, blog okay. post. He calls it, he differentiates them between a focus on law and a, a focus on grace. Now there might be fundamentalists out there going, I believe fully in grace, fully get that. And I know a lot of evangelicals who are pretty law, you know, are, yeah, are head yeah. of law. Yeah. But in general, uh, fundamentalist, as David French says here, it's kind of a law versus grace uh, discussion. And, and so I do want to ask this question, and, and maybe I'll start off with it. Why the rise in fundamentalism, both politically uh, and culturally? And I would say it's this. I think, and then I'd love to know what you think about this. I think that as Christians, primarily, as we look at the cultural landscape and see ourselves as, as less accepted and see our culture going more and more extreme in many people's opinions towards, um, you know, away from maybe who, uh, who Christians are and want to be. I think there's this nat this nature, this desire to fight. And I think fundamentalists are kind of like, nope, we're going to fight back. It's what you said about uh, about how do we approach culture. I think it's this. This is why we keep hearing words like woke and this and that as we yeah. see uh, the culture going in one direction. I think Christians kind of have a choice to go, all right, how am I going to react to what I see going on in culture? And I think increasingly uh, there's this desire politically, but also spiritually and in churches to go, we have to now run further the other direction 
uh, and kind of hunker down and fight what's going on. Yeah. And I think that leads to a lot of fundamentalist tendencies. What would you think about that kind of premise I laid out there? Yeah, I, it definitely seems like as, you know, and I, I went to a fairly fundamentalist high school, didn't realize what it was at the time, always sort of, um, you know, this is personal anecdotally kind of felt like, oh, this feels like harsh you know what i mean like like it felt like there wasn't a lot of room for grace there at all in fact i remember hearing like if you were sinning you were no longer a christian Mm. and that didn't feel uh uh, that didn't feel like it fit with the gospel anyway um so i do think especially it, it feels like fundamentalists have been around for a long time but specifically trump not being reelected um specifically some of the things we're seeing in culture of voices being raised against racism, voices being raised for women in the church, in leadership, that um, fundamentalists are the reaction is to say, that's wrong. That's bad. We have to fight it. Or Mm. we have to back away and like start our own communities. Mm. And um, I would say, of course, like you said, there are evangelicals in that same field, but generally speaking, at least the evangelicals in my circle are a little more open to um, uh, building bridges with culture, not being afraid of culture, not being afraid of knowledge outside of the church, not necessarily feeling like we have to panic Mm. Um, when politics don't go our way or we have to panic when critical race theory is being talked about. Um, instead we, we find things we can affirm in culture and things we can't affirm in culture and make decisions that way. Uh, and if you want to know how this played out at the Southern Baptist convention, just look and why it's such a big deal. Why French kind of went in on this is, uh, think about the, uh, the election that they had for the president of the Southern Baptist convention, Ed Litton, very much an evangelical, uh, trying to, uh, have conversations and Mike Stone, very much a fundamentalist as I read about him at least. And it was a very close vote. And, uh, JD Greer in his closing remarks as the president of the Southern Baptist convention, as he kind of handed it off, uh, he took, he, he had an opportunity to give one more met, like, what's he going to talk about? He talked about, uh, what are, who were the Pharisees and what does that look like and how pharisaical, uh, kind of tendencies very much calling, wow. to, to calling out this divide. And so it's going to be very interesting. I think, uh, this this particular division is one that's going to continue to grow within Christianity, Southern Baptist Convention, but across the board and also politically. And I think it's going to be really interesting uh, to see the way it plays out. Well, coming up next, Danica Cooley. Uh, she's an award-winning children's author and Bible curriculum developer. She's the author of a new book, Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. Danica is going to join us next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. We're so glad to have you joining us today on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, by the author of a new book called Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. She's a uh, award-winning children's author and Bible curriculum developer. Her name is Danica Cooley. Danica, how are you? Thanks for joining us today. I'm great. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you, Brian and Aubrey. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you with us. Hey, before we get into your book, and congratulations on the new book, before we get into it, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? 
Sure. Um, I am a mom of four kids, and um, I homeschooled the last two, and uh, we just graduated our first one, and next year we'll graduate the second. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. And um, I wrote um, a Bible curriculum to take my kids through scripture and then decided to um, share that with people. So I've been writing about the Bible um, for parents and for kids in magazines and then curriculum and books um, since 2009. Oh, that's so fantastic, Danica. What a great resource for parents. Again, the title of your book is, uh, is it called Help Your Kids Learn? To, or that's the sub, Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. Yeah, that's that's the title. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. Uh, I think we told you before, Danica, Brian and I are both parents. A lot of our listeners are parents. They have little kids and they have kids, you know, all the way up to mm-hmm. young adulthood. So in your book, you say that it is not enough just to take our kids to church or to Sunday school or to youth group. Why should parents teach their children outside of the church? Well, I I think it's important, first of all, to look at how um, scripture talks about the things that God has instituted. So the Lord instituted church is really important for us to meet together with our our church body. And Mm. I don't think we should ever neglect that. But he also instituted the family. And you see in in scripture, like Ezra, Nehemiah, um, the Psalms, we see um, families gathering together to hear the reading of the word corporately, but also in Deuteronomy and Psalms 119, we're, we're commanded to take our kids through mm-hmm. God's word and to, to read the Bible with our kids. Um, I was driving, my my youngest asked me really hard questions all the time, but we were driving when he was seven and he asked me how long he was going to stay at home. And he'd already seen two of our kids graduate to real life. Um, and I told him, well, most, most kids, you know, leave home around 18. And he said, well, you know, how many, how many days are in a year? And, and, and so I told him 365, he's a very global thinker. And um, he was like, well, how many, how many days are in seven years or 11 years? And I, I said, well, you know, 4,015. And he, so he counted and he goes, mom, you have 4,085 days left with me. Oh, wow. <laughs> how are we going to spend them? And I thought, oh no, <laughs> I think he meant like, how many times are we going to go to the park or but for me, it was very clarifying. I thought, you know, I really do only have a certain amount of time with my mm. kids. And I'm going to answer to God for how we spent that time. So we started tweaking things that we were already doing to concentrate on the Lord and the Bible and the things that we learn in the Bible. And um, we just can't do that with only an hour or two hours right, a week in church. Right. Yeah. And Danica, what makes this hard for people? Like, I think we all as parents are going, yeah, I want to help my kids learn the Bible. I want to do this. Uh, but why do, what, what makes this difficult for people? So I think, I think to be honest, we're all really busy. Our kids mm-hmm. get sick. We have soccer. We have, you know, dinner to make. Things are busy for us. Um, so I advocate making the Bible a part of your daily rhythm instead of like setting a specific time that we're going to do a specific thing. So um, you can tweak what you're already doing. Like instead of watching just regular cartoons um, while you're making dinner, because we all need a help when our kids are little, right? Um, you could you could watch something that focuses on scripture. Um, That's good. And, and also we 
during our meal times, our kids never forget to eat. They always remember <laughs> that they're hungry. So we would attach just Bible reading to that. And, you know, it doesn't take long to read a chapter of the Bible. It takes maybe 10 minutes. And then if you add in discussion time, settling everyone down, you're talking about 15, 20 minutes of your day. Um, so that's that's how we handled it. And it just made it part of our rhythm, like brushing our teeth is part, mm. of, part of the rhythm of getting up. Oh, that's so good. I love that. Um, okay, so we all have those kids, like you said, who ask the really hard questions. <laughs> like they're the deep theological thinkers and they come to us with questions that we're like, oh, I don't know if I actually know the answer to that. What should parents do in those moments, Danica? So I think I think those tend to fall into two types of questions. Um, and I think it's okay to tell our kids, like, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and God's word is important. And I want to find out the answer for you. And I will get back to you. And then, you know, go do some research. Um, and sometimes there are answers to the questions that are really important. Um, and sometimes God just doesn't tell us um, in his word what what something means. So our kids will ask questions sometimes that God just didn't tell us the answer to that. Um, and I think it helps to know the overarching themes of scripture and be able to point our kids to those. So who God is, um, our, our sin nature and God's plan for salvation and Jesus's commands for his followers. Like we can point our kids to the bigger overarching themes so that they don't get bogged down in the little details. But when we take the time to go and research the confusing things that um, that that our kids really want to know about, it communicates to them that scripture is important. So yeah. I think okay. it's good to do that. And Danica, uh, as uh, we said before, Aubrey and I are both pastors. Mm -hmm. What would you say to church leaders out there? What's uh, uh, How can churches be equipping parents to do this well at home? How can churches be supporting parents so that this is more likely to happen within homes? I think it's so important that we talk about the fact that um, it is the responsibility of parents to do this. And then we equip them. So, you know, we help them feel like this is doable because taking our kids through the Bible is completely doable. Often we as parents will read, um, you know, chapter books with our kids, but we don't feel like we can read the Bible with our kids. But the Bible is a story. So um, I think it's important that we help our our parents in our congregations understand that the, the Bible is a story that it has grand overarching themes mm. and then just give them permission to do things like skip the harder parts of the story with younger kids um, and then help equip them to answer questions for their older kids because our older kids do need to be consuming meat instead of milk. That's right. And that's where I want to talk. Danica is going to stay with us. And that's where I want to move to. I want to move to what do we do with older kids for parents who feel regret for maybe not having done this going on? And how does this look different with older kids? Uh, we're going to have that discussion with Danica Cooley. She's the author of a new book, Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. Danica is going to stay with us next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined uh, for a second segment by Danica Cooley. She's the author of a new book called Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. If you missed any of the first part of this interview, there's you could go get it. Go get it at our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. It's a great way to catch up on the show. Danica had great stuff to share from her book, Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. And it really wants you not to miss that. So go get the podcast. And Danica, thanks for staying with us. You know, we were talking, we started talking uh, before the break about um, older kids, right? Like a lot of mm-hmm. us, we talk about our younger kids and, and, you know, read the Bible with them and, and you've got this time with them. And, but what about if you have older kids and you're listening to this right now and you're going, I completely dropped the ball in this stage. Like I never really helped my kids. I kind of left it up to the youth group or church Sunday school. Talk about, to, you know, that parent who maybe has a kid who's in their young teen years, what can they be doing? Even if they haven't been doing anything up until this point. Absolutely. I, my youngest two are 17 and 18. So I'm right there with you. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that it's important to acknowledge to our kids, Hey, I just realized I should have been doing this with you. And it's really important. And you know, the Lord tells us to study scripture as a family. And so that's what we're going to start doing. Um, a lot of times we, we forget to tell our kids why we're doing something. So if we bring them along on the journey and just let them know that we're changing Mm. our family, rhythm and structure and why then that's really helpful to them. Um, and it's okay. It shows, it shows humility on our part. And I don't think it's helpful to, to experience guilt over it, but, um, it's never too late to get started reading the Bible with your kids. So, um, I think with older kids, you can read the Bible at a deeper level than with younger kids, which is, is nice. Um, with our, I advocate reading the entire Bible with your high schoolers. Um, and you can do that with your middle schoolers too. So we would just start um, by reading a chapter a day. And you, if you are uh, persistent about reading a chapter a day when you can, um, you will be surprised at, at the ground you cover mm. with scripture. And because your kids are older, they will retain more of it. You know, with our younger kids, they don't always remember all of it. I, I know we've been through the Bible four times with our, our younger kids and there are sections where we would get to it and they'd be like, did we read this before? <laughs> because it would strike them at another level, just ah. like it does. Us. Yeah. And then um, you can start teaching your older kids about um, the structure of scripture, like the genres and how to read it um, rightly. We want to teach our kids how to read that rightly. That's in the book. I cover that in like a third of the book because um, it's important that we know how to read the Bible um, and then you can cover the doctrine of scripture. There's there's things you can do that will help your kids learn about the Bible that are important. And Danica, let me ask you a follow up question to that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Brian and I are both pastors. Uh, mm-hmm. We we really love biblical context, but I know that that can feel intimidating to people, and maybe they're not exactly sure how to even uh, how to even start with learning some of the background and uh, culture and things like that. I, so I guess this is a two part question. One, why do you think it's important that we teach our kids? context and the right way to read the Bible? And then again, what are some steps for folks who might be like, I don't even know where to begin? So, um, okay. 
why why read it in context um, and why why read it rightly correct um, there are some basic things you know um, principles that we follow in reading the Bible and I think it's important to remember that the Bible is a story and and that God has given to us and God fitted us for story he helps us be able to understand it so there are overarching themes like, um, who God is and um, our sin nature and our need for a savior and then God's great plan for salvation and Jesus's commands for his followers. So if we remember to look for those themes, um, that goes a long way to helping us read the Bible rightly. Um, and we want to read it in context because it is a story. You wouldn't pick up a book and start in chapter 22. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, so when you say where to begin, um, I know I just said, don't start in chapter 22, but, um, <laughs> but I'm going to qualify that. So there's two places that I suggest parents start and you can either one's fine. Um, I suggest you either start in Matthew or Genesis. And the reason for that is if you start in the old Testament, um, there's a lot of history and it really helps us understand the um, grand themes of the Bible. And really, Leviticus is a hard book to get through, but I want you to know you can get through it in like mm-hmm. um, three days if you if you were reading, you know, like 45 minutes a day. So it's not as intimidating as it seems. So um, I also suggest that if you if you don't if your kids don't know the gospel, start in Matthew um, and they'll meet Jesus and hear what he had to say and learn about living as a Christian and the gospel, and then go back and start again in Genesis. That's good. Mm. This might seem like a strange question, Danica, but uh, help people understand why this matters. Like what difference does it make when our kids learn the Bible early on? Um, Why is this so important? Can you help uh, our people uh, maybe understand that a little bit? Yeah. um, You know, Our kids, we are laying the foundation for what they understand about the world and and how they see everything. So, and that's worldview, right? If they can see the world through a biblical lens, it changes everything for them. Mm. Um, Because the world is either going to educate them or God is. And we can have God educate our kids by taking them to his word. You know, they are hearing directly from God. So um, what we've seen with our kids, you know, we started the Bible with them when they were very little. Um, We've seen them navigate very hard situations in life with a very biblical worldview. This last year has been very difficult and Mm -hmm. um, they've lost friends and um, they have walked through it with an understanding of God's sovereignty and his plan for their Mm -hmm. lives. And um, for me, I've just been impressed to see them be able to take what they've learned from scripture and translate it to, um, to their life circumstances. Yeah, that's great. Um, Danica, for our listeners who may want to find out more about what you're doing and the resources you're putting out there for parents and uh, Bible study, where can people connect with you? Sure. So um, my book page is lovethebibleforkids.com and you'll find a free 130 page download of um, a Bible study toolkit. So there's seven tools in there to get you started learning the Bible with your kids um, that will help supplement, help your kids learn and love the Bible and and help make it really come alive for them with hands-on activities. Um, And then um, I'm at thinkingkidsblog.org. 
So um, I write all kinds of stuff about the Bible and um, have curriculum and all kinds of fun stuff. That's great. Again, Danica Cooley is an award-winning children's author and a Bible curriculum developer. She, We've been talking to her about her new book, Help Your Kids Learn and Love the Bible. Uh, Danica, it is great to meet you. Thanks. Good luck with this book, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me on, Brian and Aubrey. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a Tuesday afternoon. Aubrey, uh, I will let people know more about this later, but I should mention I'm going to be out the next <gasps> two days, which ah! is... Uh, I want I want people to understand the big deal this is. This is your maiden voyage. I mean, maybe uh, don't build it up so much, Brian. Like I was hoping to like slide it under the radar. Ooh, a little no, I'm gonna be. I am gonna be listening. So wherever it is that I am, I'm like, uh, all right, let's go. Training yes. wheels are off. Here we go. It's my maiden voyage, running the show without Brian. You all can pray for me. We're gonna have fun. My husband Kevin is coming on as my co-host, and then my friends Hannah Granowski. Well, Hannah Barnett now, and her. Husband Aaron Barnett are coming on, so awesome. we're gonna have some fun afternoons. But we're definitely gonna miss you. Do you remember that time when your kids were younger? And uh, oh, this is gonna sound so patronizing, but I'm gonna go with it. Do you remember uh, when your kids were younger and they're learning to ride a bike, and you pull the training wheels off and you you hold them for a while, and then you <laughs> let go, and you're like, "Don't crash!" <laughs> thanks, thanks, Ryan. Wow, what a what a great coach speech, sure. pregame pregame speech there, Brian. Appreciate there that. Ride that bike straight tomorrow. Stay okay. on the sidewalk. That's my goal. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm, I'm only going to blame you if it fails. I'm going to come back on Friday and be like, what happened to the show? Where's the show? <laughs> we have a new name. We have a new like theme song. What? Why is the studio all dark? I can't. Where is everybody? <laughs> oh, you will do wonderfully. It's going to be fun. Awesome. We're yeah, going to have fun. You've trained me well, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> go, 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 go and do it well, my Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> yes master we are looking forward to it so uh if you miss any of the shows we've done but also if you want to just catch up uh on aubrey and kevin tomorrow or uh aubrey and hannah and her husband the next day go get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast subscribe rate and review you can also find us online at 1160hope.com and then all the social medias at facebook twitter instagram at common all the social meds See, we're just going to we're going to become like the kids now. There That's we right. go. After, you know, you and I really trend young after we spent the first segment saying, I fall asleep at nine o'clock now. <laughs> All the Gen Zers are yes. so pumped now to listen to our show. <laughs> They're waiting for the next segment to know how many times I wake up during the night. <laughs> All right. So anyone who's been around the show knows that. Uh, one of our favorite pastors that uh, we have had on the show, we quote his books, his tweets, which we're going to do here in a second. Uh, that's a guy named Scott Saul. Scott is the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, but he's also a prolific speaker, writer. He blogs at scottsauls.com. You can also find him uh, on Twitter at Scott Sauls. And so uh, Aubrey, as I like to do sometimes, I'm just going to read a tweet with something that, okay. you know, when you're on Twitter and you're just scrolling and all of a sudden somebody writes something and you just kind of pause on it and go, huh, I need to think about that one a little bit. That that happened yesterday as I was perusing and came across this tweet from Scott Sauls. And so I'm going to read it 
and I would like just you explain it, react to it, whatever you would like to do. We'll, okay. we'll talk about it. Scott says this. To say that Christians are hypocrites, that we fall short of the mark, that we don't keep the standard, is actually to affirm a chief tenant of our faith. Hmm. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Scott's getting at this idea that this uh, thing that's thrown at us all the time, oh, Christians are just hypocrites, they're this and that. That's kind of his answer to the hypocrite Christ uh, question. He says it actually affirms... Uh, one of the chief tenets of the faith that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Talk to me about this tweet uh, from Scott Sauls. I mean, first of all, Scott Sauls is just brilliant, mm -hmm. right? Like the guy just has good things to say all the time. And I, I like that. I, I mean, it's true. All Christians are hypocrites. All people are hypocrites. Let's be honest. Um, and to say, just to affirm that, yeah, that's actually right. We are hypocrites. That's why we need a savior, <laughs> right? Like right. we all, we all fall short. I feel like that's a nice way to sh shift the paradigm of that conversation because it can, it can come within the church. All Christians are hypocrites where we're sort of blaming each other, belittling each other, or it can come from without. And I think just to go, oh yeah, that's actually true. <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah. um, to, I don't know, to acknowledge that I think acknowledges our need for Jesus, but it also acknowledges our humanity in, and instead of like uh, walking around prideful or or when those criticisms come to try to go no we're not hypocrites blah blah to actually just be like no yep that's right I don't know I think it's a very pastoral wise tweet that he put out there what do you think Brian yeah because I think oftentimes we as Christians can feel so weighed down by that call of hypocrisy because we go yeah I do fail all the time like I do um, you know uh, I do sin or I do let down these people or whatever else. And so when people are like, oh, the greatest uh, the greatest accusation we can make against Christianity is the hypocrisy of the Christians. Now I start to feel guilty. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like now people aren't coming to faith because of my lack of perfection. Mm. Uh, and, and Scott's saying, you know what? Actually, if we think about it on a, uh, a, a faith system that's built on the grace of God, that is built on his love for us despite our imperfection, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then our hypocrisy actually affirms the truth of it, as opposed to the other faith systems that say, you've got to earn this, you've got to live up to this, you've got to do this. Now, there might be people out there wondering this, Aubrey, why uh, it feels like there's a danger in what Scott says here that we go, then it doesn't matter how I live. I'm a hypocrite. Mm. Oh, he owned it. Jesus said, like, it's all yeah, about yeah. grace. You know, therefore, I'm going to lean into my hypocrisy and I'm mm. just going to own it, uh, but almost not even try to not to be a hypocrite. Well, how would you answer that call to people who are just kind of take that actually opposite view? You know, I have a friend who I feel like does this really well. And so I'm going to, I'm going to say what he says. He'll, he'll be like in the same moment, he's like, listen, I, God loves you. And, and Jesus is so good and so mighty. And I want to live my life around, I want to center my life around Jesus. Mm -hmm. I am also the worst hypocrite and the worst sinner there is. So it is only by the grace of God that I can even say those words to you. And listen, if I have any integrity, it is only by me telling you that I'm a hypocrite. Because mm. if I pretend like I'm not, then you'll see right through me. So I, I, I think there's something beautiful about that example that he's, he's not... Um, 
uh, he's not, he's saying I'm a hypocrite, but at the same time, um, to answer your question, he, his heart is centered around pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's maybe the difference, right? You to, to, to just go, Oh, I'm a hypocrite. So, I mean, Paul talks about this in the new Testament. So it doesn't matter what I do. I can keep on sinning because God's mm-hmm. grace is big enough. He's going to forgive me. That takes advantage of the goodness and mercy of God that he's shown us through Jesus Christ. And so I think you have to have both the humility and the authenticity to say, yeah, I'm a hypocrite, but also I am here to serve God. I am not here to give in to my hypocrisy or to serve my hypocrisy. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the book of Romans. Like, shall I go on sinning? And Paul says, Paul says, absolutely not. And, and it, it does get yesterday. You and I talked about, do we, you know, our belief, do we believe that following Jesus is actually better life now, not just in heaven? And, and it hmm. to go, oh, I could be a hypocrite, so I could do whatever I want now, and it's not going to matter, is to say that I actually believe that following after, you know, uh, Paul's words in Galatians, my sinful nature, instead of sowing to the spirit, uh, actually leads to greater um, greater joy and greater peace and all the things that we're searching for. And, and ultimately, how we live does matter, but it's not our perfection that is going to be the greatest uh, display of the gospel. It's going to be uh, the grace that we are shown and that we show others even yeah, that's in the right. midst of our failures. That's so right. I, I think this is really helpful. Saul's saying, uh, one of the chief tenets of our faith, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It gets shown in us every day as we fail and as we continue to repent and move forward. Uh, that's a good word from Scott Sauls. Yeah. All right. He's a really great pastor. Coming up next, I want to talk to you about, uh, Aubrey, I, I hesitated to do this today, but there was a Twitter dialogue from somebody that is a well-known pastor here in the Chicagoland area that is, to say the least, troubling. And you and I are going to discuss that next year on The Coming Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're talking about corruption and evangelical leadership. But then we have some good news. We're talking about a life that sustains us. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon before Brian abandons me for a few days. I'm having so many complexes and issues right now, but I think we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. You can let us know uh, how I do without Brian and how much you miss Brian. You can actually let us know on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Common Good Talk. We love to hear from you. And if you have missed any of today's show or yesterday's show, um, particularly the moments with some of our fabulous guests, you can find us on our podcast. You can yell at Alexa. Hey, Alexa, play the Common Good podcast. Yes, that works. Yeah, she will do that for you. Um, But we would love to have you check out those episodes. So, Brian... You wanted to talk about something that is happening right now. It's your fault. Uh, Happening right now, very publicly in evangelical Christianity, amongst two voices, James McDonald and Julie Royce. And I'm just going to hand things over to you. Why don't you talk about what's going on? And then we'll unpack it a bit. Yeah. So, you know, for those people who aren't familiar with the story, like sometimes those of us who, you know, are pastors and radio hosts and whatever else, it's like everybody knows these stories and you realize that people don't. Yeah. Most people uh, are just living their lives. (laughs) A little history lesson here for the show. The very first segment that Ian and I ever did, like not even the first show, the very like 
hey, welcome to the first episode of The Common Good. And the first thing we talked about was on that day, uh, kind of James McDonald was uh, – uh, at Harvest Bible Chapel, it was all kind of falling apart. And and what started that, and who actually was our first guest ever on our show with Julie Royce. She is a reporter uh, who was breaking the news stories about James McDonald. And uh, to say that she has written a lot about James McDonald would be a, an enormous understatement. <laughs> like Julie yeah, uh, yeah. has written a lot about James McDonald, also about Ravi Zacharias and others. Julie kind of uh, her niche, if you will, is to kind of take on things that she sees need to be exposed within the church. And so right. James McDonald, as many people know, uh, is no longer at Harvest Bible Chapel. And it's just really ugly. If you could Google him, you could go look at it. It's just really ugly. The the, the disputes about, you know, who owns uh, the, the radio ministry walk in the word and who owns this and who's going to run that. It's just been a huge black eye. And to mm. say that James McDonald has not gone quietly, uh, whether you believe he should or shouldn't, I would just say yeah. he has not. Yeah. Uh, what well, no one has ever heard from him really is his thoughts on Julie Royce. Right. <laughs> and all <the laughs> Until <truth>. now. <laughs> and then within the last week or two, he has gone, uh, somewhat nuclear on Twitter and with blog posts at jamesmcdonaldministries.org. I don't know if I should be giving the website, but I just did. Uh, and here's where we want to go with this, Aubrey, because I do, I actually, there's part of me that understands him going all in on her because uh, if you thought you were treated unfairly in some way, you'd want to defend yourself. You would want to go back. Now, it's been a couple of years, but I could understand it. What is really hard to to um, grapple with is the, t the tactics James McDonald is using at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and those tactics are... Um, are name calling to be to be blunt and and using very derogatory terms for yeah. Julie Royce. So she yeah. calls her Julie Julier Royce, uh, but that is by far not the worst of it. He calls her an apostate and not a Christian. Uh, he calls her um, just some really derogatory terms for women. Yeah. Um, that uh, he so I'll say it. He calls her Jr. Gossip Slut. A hashtag, not just once, a hashtag through this whole stuff. Uh, and he just kind of goes in. And then what obviously happens is people start pushing back on him for use for his language. Exactly. Not just what he's – nope. It's so – it's almost funny that it's become less about what he's saying about Julie Royce. And, and more about the way he's – the way he's going about it. Yes, people going, man, you were a respected pastor. What's going on here? It's like a – Honestly, it's got some rantings of, of what feels a little unhinged. Yeah. And now he's making blog posts as to why it's biblical for him no. to be to be name calling, not just her, but anybody who believes what she's written, anybody on that side, I'm using air quotes here, who have pushed back against him. And he's kind of set himself up as the martyr and the biblical prophet right now. And he's did the whole, the whole blog post about how prophets use derogatory language mm. to highlight wrongs that were going on. Mm. And now there's like non-Christian websites that are writing articles about him, Ugh. just kind of going off and being unhinged. Uh, it, it's kind of crazy. And so I guess I wanted to land it a little bit on just how did it, not only how did he get here, but this idea of 
even when you're really, really, really angry, there's things that Christ followers don't do. Right. And and that is all the things he's doing right now. It's kind yeah. of unhinged name calling. It's kind of uh, publicly questioning people's faith. Now, he did say, well, all of you are saying I'm obsessed with Julie Royce for making three posts. She made 80 posts about me. There's an argument to be had there. I think you could make the argument that Julie has kind of gone way gone far after him or here, whatever. Right. <clears throat> uh, but how he's responding is really troublesome. And particularly, and, and this might just sound, people might be like, that's kind of the smallest deal. It's shocking to see the language that he's using over and over and over again it here. It absolutely is. And, and using the Bible to say, no, I'm completely justified in this language. I, it's just trouble. It's, I almost said troublesome. It's beyond troublesome. I, I, yeah. I mean, a part of me is like, are you, have you read the teachings of Jesus? I mean, like, turn the other cheek. Love your enemy, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. That's Paul in Ephesians 4. Um, it, uh, it, it's very disturbing. And it's, it is coming across as unhinged. I, I think the way I, I, I'm with you, I can understand how you would be triggered if someone continues to go after you. Right. So fine be angry fine the public vitriol the public bullying the public abusive language the public sexist language this man saying this about a woman who's his sister in christ it's offensive to the gospel this is not god honoring this is not the way of jesus yeah and he needs to publicly repent at this point i mean i i actually i think what i'm mostly i'm disturbed by how he's treating her period mm -hmm. i am disturbed that the watching world is seeing this happen and that's it right. is impacting the witness of Christ. And mm -hmm. that's more just like, take it offline, you guys. I mean, that's what I want to say. James McDonald, stop doing this. Like, stop doing it one, stop doing it publicly. And then to, to use like, oh, to misuse scripture in such a way that you're defending your bullying. I, I, I don't understand how the people in his life aren't saying to him, I, I felt this way sometimes with Trump take put your phone away get off social media step away from your screen because right now you're acting you're behaving in a way that is ruining the witness of jesus that does not honor the god who loved you and saved you and frankly is just unhealthy like this is what we say is wrong with social media all the time and it's mm -hmm. like a leader is doing this i i this is awful yeah and i do on a very practical level too what i would want to tell him is one of the biggest things that was put up against you was that you had anger problems and are a bully. Yeah. And maybe responding in this way is not helping that narrative. <laughs> maybe that it's <laughs> there you go. Just not helping. And again, I've got issues with how Julia has handled all of this too. But uh, the idea that that name calling and using the most derogatory terms that you could use for women uh, in hashtags through this and then and then just standing up and saying, nope, this is biblically grounded mm -hmm. in ways I couldn't disagree more. Maybe you're yeah. out there and you disagree with us. You're like, nope, got to fight fire with fire. All right. I don't see that in the Bible so much. Like that doesn't feel like uh, like the gospels that I'm reading. And, and right. I think it's it's like you said, the hard part for us, and maybe, you're, maybe we shouldn't even be amplifying it, but – uh, the hard part for us is simply this: it, people are seeing it. Like it's it's uh, it, it's it's 
coloring Christianity and the church for people out there. And that's what's problematic about it. Well, I had to get that off my chest. I saw that uh, over the weekend. All um, right. Well, good. Glad, glad we mentioned about that. Too. Hopefully we don't have much more to talk about this. Hopefully this story moves on. We definitely feel like I need to pray for both of them. As we come back, we're going to talk about another interesting thing that's happening in evangelical Christianity. Oh, we've got some good news at the end of our hour today as well. So it's not going to be all negative. We've got some positive things coming for you. We're so glad you're sticking around with us. You've been listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, on this Tuesday afternoon. And we are so glad that you're here with us. I hope you've enjoyed today's show so far, especially our conversation with children's author Danica Cooley. If you've missed any of the episode, you can always go back and find us on our podcast. You can always go find us on the website. Brian, what's the website? 1160hope.com. Just read it off your hand. It's on your hand. (laughs) It's my new tattoo, 1160hope.com. We'd love to have you go back and listen to any of the episodes that you missed. Um, So today, Brian, we thought we would talk about something that... You know, feels evergreen for all of us. It's uh, the idea of learning what it is to live with loss. Mm -hmm. And over at the Gospel Coalition, uh, editor David Barshinger wrote an article about how his 10-year-old brother um, passed away when he was, uh, well, he was 10. How old was the how old was the author? I think he was eight eight years old. Yeah, so he was eight. He lost his brother. And um from cancer and what it is to sort of live with death, honestly, impacting you at such an early age. And um, one of the things that he talks about is how uh, in the Civil War, there were wounded individuals who had to learn to live without part of themselves Mm. in daily lives. Maybe an amputee had to learn to live without a body part. And in some cases, these veterans are no longer able to walk, write, make a living, touched a loved one's face. Such losses, this editor says, this author says, such losses inhibit normal life and raises questions about how or whether to continue. They rub against the grain of what we expect the life of God's blessing to look like against the prayers we offer to God. And that to me um, really is the heart of grief, Mm -hmm. especially for the Christian as we expect life to go one way. We expect God to do things a certain way. And then when he doesn't, that raises that gap between what we expected God to do and what actually happens can sometimes um, breed so much grief and so much heartache. And I think the question is how do we learn to live in that in between space yeah, I never knew. Speaking of the amputees, he uses the uh, the imagery here that uh, that sixty thousand amputations from the Civil War. In fact, three quarters of all surgeries in the war were amputations. And he goes Whoa. on to say, if these people lived, you know, because obviously medicine was very different back then. Yeah. If they lived, they were a visual reminder that they were, you know, not mm. whole, not who they were before that. Uh, that part of them was gone. And and I, I think that's a really powerful image to the grief, uh, whether you lose a loved one, that's kind of the biggest one. But also he talks about COVID in here and just the things we've lost that that you may not visually be able to look at somebody all the time and be like, oh, they're they're like they're living without part of themselves. Right? Yeah, like something yeah. has changed. But that actually that is how we are walking around. And, and the question becomes and you brought it up really well is 
as the Christ follower, when your life doesn't match what you think it should be, right? When God did, didn't, in this guy's case, didn't save his 10-year-old brother from mm. a brain tumor, yeah. or when God doesn't, uh, you know, bring bring a miraculous healing to the thing that you've been praying for, right. or whatever else it might be, how do you reconcile that? And, and more, how, so how do you move on in the faith? How do you keep your faith? But then how do you just continue living? Like, how do you keep going? And I think that's such an important but hard question uh, that, that it, it, yeah, I don't know how to put it. It's a really difficult one because it's one thing to theoretically be like, hey, bad things happen to good people. Uh, God still loves you. God's still present. But when you actually suffer that loss and you feel alone, you know, what do you do? And so, Aubrey, I know you, you know, I, I like to bring it up a lot, but you wrote a book on lament. You wrote a book trying yeah. to help people yeah. understand how you do process these hard things in life and how you do. So I guess I would ask you now, you probably get the question a lot mm -hmm. when somebody comes to you and like, hey, you know, I, I suffered this incredible loss and I just don't know which way is up. I don't know how yep. to keep going. How, what do you tell people? Yeah, I, d I did write a book on lament uh, called The Louder Song after a, a season of grief in our life. I lost, lost a cousin who was like a brother to me and we uh, had some health issues and some other things happening all at once. And I was asking that same question. Am I praying to the ceiling fan? God, are you real? You know, just some of the questions we all ask in our times of grief. And then I think the bigger question was, how do you live with this? Like, how do you keep getting up and like making breakfast and doing the dishes and doing these things that are just a normal part of your existence, but you feel changed. You feel marked because of this grief you're experiencing. And the wonderful thing about the Christian faith is that we have a God who invites us into this journey of lament and has given us a biblical language and example for lament. Um, and so I'll try to make this brief, but I, I would say a couple of things. One, we often think that God is, we forget, we ask like, God, where are you? God, how could you? And we forget that we have a God who is with us, a God who is not far away from our pain, but a God who actually has carried our pain on himself on the cross and is with yeah. us in the middle of our pain. That's the promise. So we have God's presence. Um, so one, I think to remember that God is with us, but because God is with us, the invitation in seasons of grief and heartache and disappointment are really to give all of that grief as ugly, as raw, as just um, impolite as it is to God. Because I think sometimes we have this idea in Christianity that we can only give God our praise. We can only give God our thanksgiving. Um, but the reality is in any meaningful relationship, I mean, any relationship that's mature, that's deep, that's intimate has praise and thanksgiving and has points of pain, points of disappointment, conflict, arguments. Yeah. And so the beautiful thing about God, again, is that he wants an intimate relationship with his people. And so we are actually invited to come to him and just say, God, this is the worst. You have let me down. How could you let this happen? Right. We see that all throughout scripture from Lamentations to David to Job, even Jesus lamented. So we have biblical examples. And that what we find in our heartache is that um, God isn't angry at us for that. God doesn't push us away for that. Instead, God actually meets us in our pain in, in the most profound ways with his presence. And that it is actually a more authentic faith to go to God with your anger and your I mean, your bad words, your like whatever it is, God can handle that. It's a more 
faithful to go to him with that stuff than it is to walk away from him. And so lament really is this, uh, it's an expression of grief, a pathway towards hope where we, we cry out all of our heartache. We give it to God again and again and again. And then honestly, part of lamenting is just sitting and waiting in our grief until God shows up again, because Mm. sometimes we want to skip to the other side and we want to like wrap a bow on things. And we want to like, especially in evangelical Christianity, we want to be able to like, you know, post something social media about how awesome everything is right now. But sometimes grief, laments, heartache, take a lot of time. Um, And a lot of that is sitting and waiting and continuing to give our heartache to God and waiting for him to show up. And the beautiful thing is he does, he will, he'll show up and you'll learn to live with grief and you'll learn to find gifts in grief that you didn't know were there. Yeah, that's a good word. Again, your book is The Louder Song. I'd encourage people to go pick it up. Uh, So the author here writes something uh, that I that is one of the keys I think to this conversation and feels really backwards and he it's a simple line he says here he says to erase my loss is also strangely to erase my gain uh, and so yeah. he kind of talks about how even like well we've talked about this before that it's often in the times of our deepest loss deepest sorrows deepest struggles that God shows up the most powerfully that's right and where we go I would never want to go through that again but there was something sweet about. Uh, where God, you know, what, what I learned about God in there and where God showed up in that. And yeah. so he says to erase my loss is also strangely to erase my game. And he talks very candidly how he wishes his brother was in full health, alive, free of cancer. Uh, but that that's not the case. And so he talks about the eternal perspective, but man, that line sticks out to me there to erase my loss is strangely to erase my gain. I think that's powerful. Yep. Somehow in God's mighty hands that there can be, there can be gifts, there can be gain in loss. I mean, only, only a good God could do that. So if you're hurting right now, we encourage you to go to him, give him your pain and ask him to show up in the middle of it while holding your heartache at the same time. We hope that encourages you. When we come back, Brian and I are going to talk about a new uh, podcast that we're really excited about. I think it's going to be a really interesting one, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. So stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are talking about another podcast, not just The Common Good podcast, which you can listen to anytime you want to, by the way. Uh, there's a new podcast that Christianity Today is producing that, Brian, you and I have been kind of excited about. Yes. Even though it might be kind of a heavy one, I actually think it's going to be really, really meaningful. And that is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And the first episode came out, and the question that they ask is, who killed Mars Hill? (laughs) (laughs) Which is, uh, you know, an interesting question. They unpack a lot of what happened with uh, Mars Hill's leader, Mark Driscoll, and some of the ways that the good things that were happening at Mars Hill and some of the devastating things that were happening at Mars Hill. And one of the things I think um, always is a question in conversations like these is why are you even talking about this? Doesn't this hurt the church when we continue to have these conversations? Why does it seem like you're, you know, continuing to discuss terrible leadership? Is that valuable or not? And that's actually something that Kate Shelnut and Daniel Silliman, who are part of the podcast, discuss at the very end of episode one that I wanted you all to hear a little bit of. You know, the the steady stream of these stories um, really hurts the witness of the church. Shouldn't we be concerned about that in, in terms of what what our coverage looks like? 
Well, I mean, not to be super sassy, but <laughs> it's, it's the pastors and the leaders who are abusive that hurts the witness of the church. We don't make up these stories. And I'll be honest, we actually don't do a ton of digging. People come to us with these stories. So I think that, yeah, that the, the people who, who you need to be mad at for hurting the witness of the church are people who are abusing the people in their congregations and in their midst. I think we also overestimate the negative impact of talking about stuff and then underestimate the, the negative impact of stuff happening. You know, if you thankfully have never had an experience with an abusive leader, it feels like talking about it is the first time that it comes up. But many people have had abusive experiences and and for them the the not talking about it compounds it and it, it adds to that silence and it feels to victims and to people who've been exposed to just negative stuff in the church the silence feels like this church-wide consent like we're just okay with it we think that's the way it is and or we don't care it makes me think of Ted Olson, our um, executive editor, had written an op-ed years ago, um, which was something like, if you see something, say something was the title. But there's a line in that that I think of all the time where it said, when someone does something wrong, that hurts. Um, when you find out that other people knew and didn't say something, that hurts worse. So again, that's Mike asking them, hey, why, why are we even talking about this? And what I love is they're saying, hey, ultimately, we want the church to begin to side with sufferers, as we feel like God has called the church to do and be, but also, um, let's do better. Like, mm -hmm. let's learn some lessons, uh, not just about Mars Hill, but for the church going forward. Did you get a chance to listen to any of this? Brian? So no, I've got it on my, I'm, it's ready to go, but I have not listened to the first yeah. one yet. But I think people need to understand again, why Mars Hill is such an important church to talk about mm. uh, because it was one of the churches, right? One of the hot churches. I, I hate using that language, but I think people understand what I'm saying. Yeah. One of those churches over the last decade, right? Like, ex, you know, explosive growth. Mark Driscoll was everywhere, speaking books, whatever else. Uh, and everyone knew that he was kind of a strange dude in terms of anger or this or that. But uh, but God was doing crazy, uh, apparently doing amazing things. And it was just a different kind of church. He was kind of a man's man, all this kind of stuff. And uh, it there it, he didn't lose his job over sexual sin or right. money. It had to right. do with plagiarism, but also just general attitude, right? Anger bullying and this and that. And why this is the church they chose to do this podcast about is when, when, when Mark Driscoll was, you know, you could say he stepped down or he was relieved of his duties or whatever else it might be. The church folded within like a month mm. and or two. And you're just, people were looking at that going, wait a minute, what was going on in this church that the yeah. removal of the head guy, uh, literally, it was like a Jenga game where you pulled out the wrong piece and it just crumbled down. Mm. And then the, I'm sure they're going to get into the fact that Mark Driscoll just kind of went and started a whole new big right. church in, in Phoenix, in the uh, the Phoenix area, at least Scottsdale. Uh, and that Mars Hill is now just kind of in the history books and people kind of going, what can we learn here? And so that's why I think this is important. And I really do resonate with Kate and Daniel say there because 
it doesn't do us any good in general when things crumble or when things are bad to not do an autopsy and say what happened here for the sake of learning going forward. And I do think they make a really good point. Like, what was the what were the unhealthiness of this church and yeah. quite frankly of a lot of churches that led to this? This might have been kind of that unhealthy things on steroids, uh, but they're not the only church with this. And so them saying, hey, we want to figure out what, what went on in this church so that the church can be better in general going forward, that the church can side with, you know, like you said, those who are suffering or those who are being bullied or those. And the church could, quite frankly, just look more Christ-like. Like, again, I used to listen to Mark Driscoll all the sure, time. Sure, fantastic communicator. Fantastic. and and But you'd always leave those going, something feels just a little off, but man, yeah, it's captivating. Absolutely. And man, that church is doing amazing things. As you pointed out, Ed Stetzer is also prominently featured in this podcast, and he talks about kind of the trade-off of God doing unbelievable things seemingly in the church, but also bad things going on. And I think that is why this podcast is so interesting, because at the heart of it is kind of this wrestling of what do you do with what seems like good fruit coming off of really what feels like a kind of an unhealthy treat? Yeah, I, I'm I'm really I'm really glad they're doing this podcast because it feels like a moment as we hear more and more stories of pastors who um or really high profile church leaders, ministry leaders who just seem to have a different personal life than they do a public life. That integrity piece is missing. I hope this sheds some light on that and begins to convict those of us in church leadership and really every follower of Jesus that our our integrity matters in this day and age. We need to be the same people inside of our house that we are outside of our house. And then the other thing is I, I hope that this um, podcast leads to kind of a, a paradigm shift where we begin, instead of protecting our you know pet, pastors and our pet celebrity Christians, instead of protecting them, we actually turn um, and begin to shine light on victims, victims mm. of abuse, victims of bullying, people in churches that are just carrying like heaviness because their pastors have done them wrong. And I mean, every pastor is flawed. I don't, I don't mean general fail, you know, general, just being a human and making mistakes. Some of these things are devastating that Mark Driscoll did or that some of these other church leaders we've talked about before. And so for those victims that have suffered underneath that type of leadership, I hope this begins to shine a light and love suffers more than the church has typically done. Yeah. One of the things that Christianity um, public Christianity Today published right after the Ravi Zacharias investigation, so this is in September of 2020, um, one of the editors there said, Hey, here's, here's why we do these types of investigations. It's because we love the church. Yes. And so when there's evidence of harmful behavior by ministry leaders, we feel like love compels us to love those who have been hurt, not just the immediate victims, but the countless others who witness the fallout from this sin and this abuse and begin to wonder, like, is Christianity really real? Do these Christian leaders really care? They say deep love for the church compels us to love these airing, you know, mistaken ministry leaders. However, that love also compels us to disclosure because often it's disclosure that leads these leaders to repentance. Absolutely. And so I, you know, I think that's a really good, 
this is a high profile story, Mark Driscoll, Ravi Zacharias, obviously. Um, but this is, I think, a good word for the church going forward for all of us who follow Jesus that we can love uh, leaders who are um, messy, right? Mm-hmm. Who fail. And yet, part of that love is holding leaders accountable to that failure. And, you know, Brian, you're a church leader. I'm a church leader. As painful as it is, wouldn't you rather your elders, your um, family, your accountability partner say to you, hey, you are messing up here. This is mm-hmm. hurting people and not honoring God, then allowing you to keep going? Oh, absolutely. And and all of us want healthy churches. Uh, yeah. Nobody starts churches or starts in the pastorate and goes, man, I really want to do this for like my own gain. Right. It just kind of happens and you get off course. And then if you don't have the right people in your life to kind of help you see that, as you said, then it becomes really problematic. And I do think uh, church work, like any work, uh, it can fuel the ego and kind of fuel yeah. the narcissist and this and that. And so I do think this high profile church with this high profile uh, fall is not just for voyeuristic reasons to do this, but to go, what can we learn about all churches? What can I learn about myself? And how can we have a healthier church globally going forward? There we go. Yep. There we go. So if you want to check out that podcast, you can find it at Christianity Today. Again, the name is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I'm sure Brian and I are going to be listening and talking about these yes. episodes as they come out because it's going to be a very interesting one. We'll stick around as we wind up the show. We're going to talk about what it means to have a life that sustains us and what things don't sustain us. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. We're wrapping up the show. I'm Aubrey Mm -hmm. Sampson, joined by my co-host for just another few minutes, and then he's leaving me, Brian Fromm. Well, let's Um, be I'm leaving you for two days. Okay. It's only two days. I might have abandonment issues, Brian. (laughs) You just made it sound like I'm done. I was like, did I get fired? What does she know? Okay, that's true. He's not leaving the show. He's leaving for two days, and uh, (laughs) I'll be running things without him, and we're going to have some fun. We'll see maybe we'll make some changes while brian's gone and then uh he'll have to come back to all dad jokes all the time that's what it's gonna be (laughs) we're just gonna call the show dad jokes and you'll share some with us you haven't not given us a dad joke today brian oh i gotta put you on the spot do you have one no, I do not. Give me a moment. Okay. Go okay, start I'll... us off here. I will come before the show is done. I will have one for you. Yeah, that feels important. I feel like you can't go away for two days without giving us a good solid bride from It might not joke. be okay. solid, but we know you'll laugh at it. I know because I clearly don't have a sense of humor. Well, our uh, friend of the show, Karen Swallow Pryor, she is an English professor. She is a great follow on Twitter, really influential in the evangelical space right now. She wrote an article actually a few months ago, but I found it recently where she's talking about what does it actually mean to live a meaningful, satisfying life. And, and it's because of a question that she was asked. And here's what someone asked her. This, by the way, is at religionnews.com. But someone asked her if the life she leads, her public life as a writer, speaker, quote unquote, influencer, was the one I'd always envisioned for myself. So was that the life she envisioned for herself? And Karen says, no, that wasn't the answer. The public life is not what feeds the desires of my heart. It's not the vision I had for myself. My public life is the things that happen along the way while I set out to do different things, read, study, teach. It is interesting, Brian, because every time we have Karen on the show, 
uh, you know, will describe her as a, she's an author. She's a public figure. She's a, and she's like, no, no, no. I'm an English professor. Like she consistently says that's her first love. That's her first job. She tries to remind people of that. What she says in this article is that in this digital age, we live public personas, public portrayals, public projections are magnified really immeasurably and begin to distort reality. And so we have these unrealistic expectations that can lead to disappointment in our own life. So, you know, you you know, we all do this, right? You're doing the Instagram scroll or the Facebook scroll or the Twitter scroll or the TikTok scroll. And you see someone's all else's life, you see their successes, you see their accomplishments, and suddenly you can begin to go, wait, why do they get to do these quote unquote big things? Mm -hmm. And I'm just here living my normal life. And what Karen is actually saying is, listen, (laughs) the big life, the the world changing life is actually the life when we are just simply loving our neighbors and uh, tending to the people around us, that we don't have to serve God in these loud public ways, but serve in these, she calls them quiet in glorious ways. Mm. And that there's not, you know, God does call some people to serve on big platforms. Like she's saying that's okay. But the reality is it's the inner life that really matters. And part of her story is that she spent a lot of time um, tending to a kind of a teardown of a house an empty house. It had poor wiring, poor plumbing. She began to inhabit it and um, began to rebuild it. It's taken two decades for her to restore this home. And she has a garden there. And um, she has made this place that was kind of falling apart and malnourished, a beautiful home that she loves. And ultimately what Karen says is, the call is the same for all of us to inhabit our souls. So like she inhabited this house, our call is to inhabit our souls, souls formed by God for our good and his glory and to nourish the inward life that yields the fruits of the outward one. So the point is not to have so much focus on this amazing social media life, but actually to nourish and pour into your inward life. What do you think about that, Brian? I think that's powerful. And and something that's worth remembering here is Karen, in many ways, in the Christian world, kind of has what a lot of people want. People listen to her. She has a big following. Uh, She writes books. but And and so I think it it comes with great weight when you hear it from someone like her, because she can be like, yeah, you know, I do have a platform. I do have this. Mm-hmm. But I think her point is really powerful that that we chase after the wrong things. And, you know, you get five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road and you look back and you're going, why did I spend all this time trying to create a platform? Why did I spend all this time trying to get noted or whatever else it might be? Yeah. Not that having a platform or being is a bad thing, but right. not. But the question is kind of what captivates your soul? That's like good. What is what is driving you each day? And I think Karen does a really good job to be like, hey, uh, the, it's actually probably a lot smaller than what we often talk about. So it's things like, you know, she talks about here redoing this house. But really, it's the call of God in our lives to love our neighbor, mm-hmm. to love God with all that we have. Like if if we got to the end of our lives and we're like, you know what? I loved my neighbor really well, and I loved God with all that I had. Uh, yeah. I taught that to my kids, and I kind of had a good time along the way. Would that be enough? And I, you know, when I say that now, I, I'm like, yes, that would be enough. But I'm not sure that our lives always, uh, my life, I should say, always lines up that I think that that's enough because it's always like oh, I need this or I need that or I need that. And and 
that, uh, you know, so much of life, I think, becomes about what are we focused on? What are we running after? And I think uh, Karen does a really good job on saying, hey, we might be off a lot of us on what we're actually kind of setting our goals, setting our eyes and running after. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that she calls people to, she says it takes two seconds to send a tweet that goes viral. It takes an hour maybe to give a talk, maybe a year or two to write a book. So those are the world she's participating in publicly. But then going back to this house, it takes two decades to restore a home, to tame its grasses and shrubs, to cultivate the flowers. It takes two decades to get to know and love our neighbors. And so what I think Karen is calling us to, and, and she calls us, she calls us to this in the way we read, the way we live, the way we practice our faith, slow down, you know, and, and live a life of meaning um, as you go and not rushing to get the quick fix or not rushing to be a celebrity, but instead like, it, yeah, just slow down and enjoy the life that God has yeah. given you, which I think is just a good word for all of us in this day and age. Okay, Brian, yeah. do you have a dad joke? Uh, I do. I, I feel like I'm going to get you with this one. Okay. All right. Uh, as we, we know, anyone who's been around knows that you've laughed at all of them so I know, far. It's and really they are, bad. They are, they've been terrible. Some yeah. of them have been good, but some of them have been bad. Yeah. So this is uh, where we decide if Brian is doing a dad joke, meaning it's cheesy, but actually funny or a dud joke. It's just terrible. And so far, like Brian said, I've thought they were all funny, but yep, that may it, say more about my sense of humor. So we'll see. We, we, don't do, we don't allow you to declare funny or not funny. It's just whether you laugh or not. I guess that's true. That's true. Okay, and, so let's oh. see what happens. All right, Aubrey, question for you. Uh, which computer has the best voice? Oh, which computer has the best voice, Brian? Adele. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was a good that one. one. You got me you. again. <laughs> I knew that one would get you. <laughs> you oh, go. you got me again, Ryan. I Very love it. I think I'm starting to learn for you. Part of it's delivery. Like if I can deliver it with enough <laughs> anticipation, I can pretty much tell you anything. I feel like that there is some truth to that. And if it takes me a second to get the like double entendre, then I'm yes. like, oh, yeah, that's a good one, Ryan. Like the other day when I got you with the one about the moon cutting its hair and like you're like, how how does the moon cut its hair? And I was like, eclipse it. <laughs> like just the yes gets you. So yes. Yeah, that's true. So, the some, computer so maybe someone with the else, best voice, yes. Adele. Well, on that note, we hope you have a great rest of your evening. Come back tomorrow because my husband, Kevin Sampson, is going to be sitting in Brian Fromm's chair. That's right. We'll see how that goes. That should be a fun one. Brian, we'll miss you the next couple of days. Thank you. But we'll see you back here on Friday. Is that right? I, uh, that's okay, right. Good. We'll be together on Friday. Ready okay, to go good. for the don't, weekend. Don't leave me too long. I can handle two days without you. It'll be all right. Well, for the rest of you, we hope you have an amazing evening. Enjoy that cool weather out there and be sure to come back tomorrow from four to six. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson. <laughs>